You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. If I could have everyone's attention, we're going to get started. Today, uh, my name is Pete Betke. For those of you who aren't part of the program, I'm the director of the F.A. Hayek uh, Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and a professor of economics and philosophy here at George Mason University. Um, today, we're very fortunate. We have David Schmitz uh, from the University of Arizona. David is the founding director of the uh, Center for Philosophy of Freedom at the University of Arizona, as well as the Kendrick Professor of Philosophy in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. And David is the author of uh, many uh, books, uh, uh, classics in the field of political philosophy, um, such as his work, Elements of Justice, um, but also an earlier book, which is one of my favorites, which is on uh, rational choice and moral, uh, moral agency. Um, which I think is just a, a sort of a brilliant uh, book. Um, and uh, David is working on this topic right now on markets and education. This is part of a, a project in which he will be engaged with another author. It's a for and against uh, kind of project, which an earlier book of David's on the welfare state for and against uh, has become a kind of a classic in that. Um, and so we couldn't have anyone better to talk about this topic than David, and we're thrilled to have him here and, and uh, his association with our program. So without any further interruptions for me, please welcome David Schmitz. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming out today. It's great to be here uh, and great to... Uh, have the occasion to uh, look at Pete and just think about how far we've come since we met each other when we were like in our mid-20s and uh, it has been, what a ride it's been for both of us and I wouldn't be the same person if not for Pete. We've been together that long and been trying to civilly, civilize each other for that long and uh, yeah, so I, uh, uh, it just reminds me here of today how much there is for, for us to be grateful for, and me in particular. So in a marketplace, people show up offering goods and services. And if all goes well, there's an offer, and then there's uptake, and a deal has been made. Presupposed by those ideas of offer and uptake is that people have a right to say no and they have a right to walk away from the market with whatever they initially brought. Services transfer only if buyer and seller consent. When people relate only by consent, they treat each other as self-owners, a big concept in philosophy, which means beings with a right to say no. So it's a simple idea, but arguably the idea, like conceiving as people as having a right to say no, that's the essence. That's what liberalism is all about. That's what Western civilization comes from. That's the foundation of trust. That is the essence of what it is to treat persons as persons. It's also a foundation of egalitarianism. 
So respecting persons, treating them as persons, starts with respecting the right to say no, with conceiving of persons that way. In a marketplace, sellers show up aspiring to be of service. They do that when showing up is safe, which is to say when they can expect their right to say no to be respected. In a realistically typical transaction between informed adults, anything and everything can go wrong. Usually, the deal-making works out pretty well. Normally, when we venture to marketplaces as we experience them in the real world, we find what we're looking for at a price we're willing to pay. So we go home without major regret about having bought or sold. Now, sometimes we fail to find what we're looking for and come home empty-handed. Or worse, we make a deal but discover that the product isn't what we thought it was and we wish we hadn't bought it at all. And then behind door number three, more oddly, sometimes what hurts the most is that we discover that we could have gotten a better deal. Why is that odd? Well, because that particular disappointment consists not in finding that the marketplace had less to offer than we expected, but that it had more. So we resolved to do better next time. Not because the product wasn't what we were expecting, but because we now realize we could have expected more. The market was offering us even something even better. And so in markets at their observable best, that right to say no is bilateral. Buyers and sellers alike have a right to walk away if what they're offered isn't good enough. And that right to say no has a crucial two-sided effect. It enables buyers to look for something better even as it motivates sellers to look for something better to sell. Whatever is good about market society at its observable, realistic best boils down to that, this bilateral right to say no. So how would producers know if you're making something? You're making a widget or you're planning on maybe uh, offering your services as a doorman. Uh, how would producers know whether a product is worth its cost other than by taking it to market and seeing whether consumers are willing to pay what it costs to produce more of that. If you're making electrical wiring for people maybe on the other side of the country that you'll never meet, and you want to know whether to use copper or gold, how do you know? What would tell you which metal to use? You don't need markets to tell you that aluminum doesn't work as a conductor. But you do need markets to tell you that copper is a better conductor than gold relative to the price that it costs of conducting that load. So it's about opportunity cost of diverting precious metal from other sources. You do need markets to tell you how to manage that trade-off. If customers complain that the wire doesn't work, you can't just say, ah, that isn't a market decision. That's too important to let the market decide Congratulations, you just bought some aluminum wire. Uh, you have to let the market tell you when it's time to stop forcing your product on customers who don't want what doesn't work or who don't want what isn't worth the price. Let's talk about creative destruction. Uh, Blockbuster Video was a spectacular, spectacularly successful business for a time. Probably everybody remembers Blockbuster Video. In a few years, that won't be true. Blockbuster's gone, nobody really misses it. There was a gale of creative destruction 
which is the marketplace that found a better use for resources that could otherwise be wasted on a product, on a service whose time has passed. The markets let customers sort out the relative merits of services offered by Netflix versus Blockbuster. No one asked whether Blockbuster was too big to fail. In that case, nobody asked whether we owe it to inferior providers to insulate them from the tide of progress. Nevertheless, in a real marketplace, we can anticipate that entrenched providers will come to have mixed feelings about competition. How did Blockbuster feel about being crushed by Netflix? Uh, did they go down cheering for cutthroat capitalism? I don't know, but uh, in general, formerly innovative providers get comfortable with established market share. They come to see innovation as a threat and they hire lobbyists. We may sympathize, we may understand, but when businesses shift from being of service to customers to buying and selling political power, there are consequences. And that's the other end of the realistic spectrum, markets at their observable worst, when companies are heavily subsidized and products become expensive and obsolete. So Adam Smith saw this logic operating in many industries in publicly funded and publicly delivered systems of education too. The logic of cronyism seems plain, uh, even if it's neither as obvious nor as catastrophic as what we see in the banking industry. Cronyism is a particular uh, market logic, uh, maybe of a definition, not, well, it's not about definitions though. It's a particular logic of buyers and sellers interacting. And that logic does not lose on its own spontaneously. It has to be fought. Adam Smith fought. So what are markets in education? Well, we'll see them when, here are some examples maybe. Students or students' parents have a choice about who will teach them. Administrators of schools have a choice about who will teach their clients. Sellers of educational services choose what to charge. Buyers choose whether to pay. So I'm guardedly in favor of markets in education in each of these three sentences. Above all, however, consumers of educational services should almost always be free to walk away and say no to sellers of inferior products. Is there a problem with markets in education? Maybe. Markets give customers the incentive and opportunity to grow up fast and be as autonomous as they can be. That right to say no and walk away from inferior providers is a core logic of markets, but to be worth defending, that right can't be a mere formality. It has to be a robustly affordable option on the ground. And that presupposes a fighting chance of gathering solid information about the costs and benefits of deciding one way rather than another. Moreover, there's a point before which treating students as autonomous customers would be premature. So markets in child education engage clients whose autonomy is very much in doubt. In general, we're more or less comfortable with a principle of buyer beware, but not when clients are young children. So how to market a product that involves teaching skills to be a market participant in the first place? Someone has to represent young children and take that fiduciary responsibility for walking away from a provider who isn't, whose service isn't good enough. So who can be trusted enough 
who knows enough and cares enough to represent a child effectively? Is anyone guaranteed to care? There's no guarantee that students or even parents will care as much as they should. So given the lack of guarantees, should we go over parents' heads and give someone else the power to decide? Why would we do that? Are contests for power within a bureaucracy guaranteed to be won by someone who cares more about a child than the child's own parents? If I were asking for guarantees, I'd ask for that one first. So about parents. Purchasers of automobiles are no longer helpless. It's too late to win a, a Nobel Prize for markets in lemons. So purchasers of automobiles do their research online. Consumers of healthcare services likewise are more sophisticated than they were a generation ago. Within a day, patients know uh, much of what medical specialists know about their diagnosis and treatment options within a day. Similarly, the idea that increasingly well-informed parents should defer to experts becomes less plausible by the day. Everyone's judgment is questionable sometimes, but parents, parents care about getting their facts right. And moreover, parents learn not only and often not even mainly from their own experience. When it's time to gather information, it isn't some, I don't know if you've heard this cliche, it isn't cliche atomized individuals choosing in a vacuum. People observe, consult neighbors, and learn fast. Why? Because they care. Information about how teachers and schools work may not reach Washington, but local communities know if anyone does. So where do we see creative people pouring their hearts into bringing better alternatives to market? Why don't we see it everywhere? When should we settle for something that seems to work tolerably well? And one of the big mistakes in the literature is a sort of uh, um, hysteria, I guess, talking about how the sky is falling and, uh, and um, you know, there's, our, our high schools are nothing but opium dens these days. Uh, and it, it's not really true that they're not good. They can be scary, but, uh, but many of them, the ones that your kids go to, work tolerably well. Tolerably well. So what's the least risky way of exploring alternatives that might be better? In general, I'd say it's when parents are free to learn from mistakes and vote with their feet that providers learn to deliver superior education. We could debate about whether to get the state out of the business of education, the education business, altogether and simply trust consumers and suppliers to find each other. On the demand side, that would involve trusting customers to want and know how to find the best product they can get. On the supply side, that would involve trusting providers to have a passion to get better at providing products that consumers of educational services want. To move in that direction, though, we'd have to cultivate an old-fashioned liberal courage and tolerance for important ways in which our neighbors are not like us. In particular, what we want for students may not be what students or their parents want for them. So we have to decide when the time comes to say it's your life. We can still be neighbors. We'd have to trust customers to understand and care about the difference between ineffective and effective teachers. 
and we have no guarantees. When it comes to trusting markets in something this, that would be this big a departure, it bothers us that we have no guarantees. We're human. Well, less radically then, we could try small, like small, but potentially significant departures from traditional public schooling. Under a voucher system, the state is left to occupy center stage for all practical purposes, but aims to give consumers a little bit of choice. Under a voucher system, parents can put a state-funded public education allowance toward any uh, public or private school. Everyone should want to know, everyone who cares about children should want to know whether that small but significant scope of choice is helping anyone to get a better education. And the emerging picture is not decisive. So there's a guy at a National Public Radio, Corey Turner, he says empirical research, and this is consistent with everything else I've seen, on small scale programs does not suggest that awarding students a voucher is systematically a reliable way to uh, improve educational outcomes. On the other hand, one of the more robust effects of vouchers is that competition improves the performance of the public schools most closely threatened, for want of a better word, by the voucher program. So one of the most consistently, consistent benefits of vouchers is enjoyed by students who choose not to use them. Well, that's interesting. Sweden, since 1992, has operated on a system of vouchers which they call, they wouldn't, rec uh, I'll try to pronounce it, they wouldn't recognize themselves as calling it that, no doubt, but it's, it's a skolting. Uh, their system seems to work well enough, but it, it isn't outstanding. It's a few notches uh, better than the American system in the international standing, but it's, it's, no, it's, not, it's not outstanding, and it's hardly obvious that we want to follow their lead. In a multicultural country like ours, then it's different too. We might wonder whether vouchers would do less to help people seeking to educate their children and more to facilitate segregation beyond levels already obvious in the traditional public schools. So researchers are looking into that now and the evidence is thin. At this point, it's hard to say. In the case of charter schools, there is more data and the trends are becoming apparent. Charter schools are an, are an example of, um, hardly an example of a wide open uh, free market in education. It's silly to characterize them that way. Like any other public school, charters are publicly funded and required to meet basic performance standards for high schools, public schools, uh, whether high schools or not, but public schools. Charter schools have more autonomy in deciding how to budget and how to meet standards. They shape their own curricula. They have considerable autonomy when it comes to hiring and firing staff. As a general rule, charters don't require education degrees. Chemistry teachers tend to have degrees in chemistry, not education. The public funding of charter schools is allocated in a more direct simple way on a per pupil basis, which means that when a student leaves, the funds that a school was given to educate that student immediately leave along with the student. So whether a school can meet its payroll depends on how well teachers and administrators do to attract and retain students. In theory, charter schools should aim to do 
whatever it takes to be places where parents want their children to be. If students and parents value learning, then enabling them to express demand for effective learning environments ought to reward providers who can meet that demand. So that's the theory, and it wouldn't be the first time that real-world markets had that effect. So charters, not a big step toward markets in education, but probably not a trivial step either. So what's up then? Are they turning out Charter, are charters turning out to be an example of how good markets can be or of how badly planners fail when they try to marshal cherry-picked virtues of markets? So naturally, I hope that charters represent a step forward for uh, American education or for any country that tries them. If market forces can help in the realm of education, it does seem that charters ought to make a difference. So, do they? There's no magic in charter schools, but they may have an advantage over the traditional schools. That advantage would not translate into a guarantee, and it needn't translate into immediate results. So in the first well-controlled, well-regarded, nonpartisan study that I came across in 2009, the Credo studies produced by Stanford University, well, this is what we got. Group portraits shows wide variation in performance. A decent fraction of charters, 17%, provide superior opportunities for students. Nearly half the charter schools uh, nationwide have results no different from, uh, from the local options. Over a third, 37%, deliver learning results significantly worse than their students would have realized had they remained in traditional public schools? Okay, never mind. Never mind then. Not what I expected. Hard to know how bad that result was, but it was sobering. My first reaction is, wait a minute. Traditional schools aren't performing at the level that we want. So for 37% of charters to be performing below that level, uh, that it, it would be crazy to start making up excuses and waving a hand and figuring, trying to justify ignoring that. That's, that's disturbing. Uh, and the Credo study was the best available at the time. It told us that charter schools, Dave, they're not what you're looking for. They're not the answer. One glimmer of hope, well, how many of those 37%, how many of them are Netflix, right? Uh, there might be a gale of creative destruction, a harsh market discipline that would liquidate the underperforming 30%, but leave leave standing that outperforming 17%. As, as Joseph Schumpeter taught us, that didn't he teach us that that's what the gale of creative destruction is all about? What else would market forces be? So the information on charter schools that began to come out in 2009 didn't begin to suggest that Charters were solving problems with traditional public schooling. So are competitive forces in play in the field of charter public education? And if they are, why aren't they working in the way that competition works in other industries? Is competition going, are, are we supposed to say just give it time? Give it another century? Give it another millennium? Uh, uh, competition will shake out a better long run result? 
Well, maybe the 17% of charters that were outperforming traditional schools would survive, and that would on its face be a good thing no matter what else was happening. And the other thing is, it's not just natural selection in the Darwinian sense, because there is a sort of maybe a Lamarckian element to it as well. There, there is such a thing as emulating the phenotype. So, so maybe outperforming schools would serve as models for future charters, maybe even for traditional schools that they could emulate. Uh, models of success might, that, might in more than one way become a larger percentage of the population of schools going forward. So when I visited Stanford in 2008, just as they were pulling this stuff together to present my first thoughts on ethics and the economics of education, I, I learned about the research that Eric Hanischek and his colleagues at Stanford were conducting. And so I looked at those materials and, uh, well, the tangible advantages of charter schools seemed, well, not so tangible. So to me, it's just common sense that charters are a better type of school, better type of public school even if only slightly better. Uh, but I stopped expecting the data ever to uh, confirm that charters were significantly better. So I was surprised, as surprised as anyone when later studies began to paint a different picture. Here's Credo 2013. We found 25% of charters significantly stronger than traditional counterparts in reading, 56% not significantly different, 19% weaker. In math, 29% of charters had stronger growth than traditional schools, 40% growth that not significantly different, 31% weaker. The results are an improvement over those in the 2009 report. That's a pretty big uh, change. So it's, it's a significant change. Modest differences began to emerge between new and established students, veteran students of charter schools. Learning gains improved significantly for charter students by their second year of enrollment. Once a student is enrolled for four or more years, learning gains, they, they measure like gains in terms of days per year of extra learning. That's, that's their metric. Learning gains outpace uh, traditional schools by 50 days in reading, 43 days in math. It's per year. Okay, so significant. And it's not just that the uh, continuing students show up more of an improvement, that, that they're, they're an improvement over new students. It's continuing schools outperform new charters as well. So looking at continuing schools in 2013, students at the same charter schools had about seven days more learning than their traditional counterparts. And the results for charter students in new schools are still pretty much like 2009. Students at new schools actually have significantly lower learning gains in reading than their traditional peers, just like they did in 2009. So surviving charters then aren't just surviving. They aren't just fit for survival. They're learning to be what buyers are selecting, and so are the traditional schools. So the baseline is rising. And not only, and you can see it, read the news, uh, you can see it happening. And it's not just that outperforming charters are more likely to be found, more likely to be selected, more likely to survive. They're also more likely to be emulated. So weighing against being too optimistic 
about, you know, like I've got, I've got a shred of good news to grasp like, like a straw, but um, it's still pretty ambiguous. So, new charter schools in the original 16 states that recently opened or had students mature into the tested grades appear to look a lot like the 2009 results. We just said that basically, just recapitulating that. Their performance is worse, that of, worse than that of the continuing charters. We just said that as well. The new ideas, other factors play out as well. Low-performing schools aren't being shut down quickly enough, and some are being permitted to replicate. And so what am I thinking? I'm thinking, what does it mean for charters to be permitted to replicate? What does it mean for charters to not be shut down quickly enough? I'd been thinking that what shuts down charters is parents take their children elsewhere and then the school can't meet payroll anymore. Maybe I misunderstood the extent to which market forces are in play here. Maybe I understood, misunderstood the whole idea of charters. Reading between the lines, I began to suspect that even in charter schools, decisions to close down are still made from the top down, not from the bottom up. It's not consumer driven. It's administrator driven. It's bureaucrat driven. So do charter schools shut down only when their charters are revoked by legislators or school boards? Obviously, that's a critically important factual question. Now, to be clear, it's not that I'm objecting to that. Uh, in the same way that the restaurant industry may be very well served by independent health and safety inspectors, we may want school boards to monitor all public schools to make sure they're providing the kind of service we expect. So the question remains then, what's the primary discipline here? Is it the threat of schools, the boards revoking a charter, or the threat of uh, parents leaving and thereby cutting a school's uh, budget? So, well, big factual question. I have limited information, some. So, for example, I found that there's a Center for Education reform that lists 174 charter school closings in Arizona between 1996 and 2011. That's not a properly controlled uh, scientific experiment, but you can scan the reasons. You can go through the document and scan the reasons mentioned for school closings, and that's sub suggestive. So of the 174 closings, four were closed by the district according to the report. Okay, big deal. Uh, but reading further, another 18 are listed as closed due to poor academic performance. And I don't know, but it sounds to me like that's a reason for closure mandated from above. And another 42 are listed as closed during, due to mismanagement, and then further reasons were listed. Failure to comply with charter laws, inadequate or false record keeping, and misappropriation of state funds. So yeah, some serious failures here, right? So guessing that most of those closings are initiated at the state level and adding those three numbers gives me a rough guess, very rough guess that looks like something in the neighborhood of 64 of the 174 school closings were mandated by district officials charged with monitoring the system. Then on the other side, 
84 of the 174 closings were, were for financial reasons, the most often specified financial reason being inadequate enrollment, falling enrollment. Then there were another two dozen or so for other reasons, including inadequate facilities and change in life circumstances of the school operators, right? Like they died, retired, or just decided that this was too much work. So, so people changing their minds about running, uh, running a school. Now, so you can uh, add that up, and again, a rough guess, somewhat more than half of the closings were by schools themselves responding to inadequate demand for the product. So were district monitors, were they harder on charters than on traditional schools? I don't know, and neither do I have any opinion on whether maybe they should be. It still seems to me that the worst that an underperforming charter can do is underperform for a while, for however long it takes a school to acquire a reputation with the parents or with the school board for underperformance. And then by contrast, outperforming schools make for a better educated population so long as they keep outperforming. So all by itself, this should make for a genuinely rising overall performance over time. Okay, some fur further caveats then. We still need a clearer picture of how charter school performance is affected by demographics. Maybe there's some systematic identifiable difference that predicts which schools will outperform and which will languish. Or maybe we can predict that charters work better for some populations for others and plan accordingly. So for example, does it matter whether the population is urban or rural? Does it matter whether students are white, black, male, female? Does it matter whether a charter school has a religious orientation? And if so, how exactly does it matter? Are there charter schools that upon close inspection actually aren't genuinely open enrollment in the way public schools are legally required to be? And if so, what should we infer? Sort of a side point, we need accountability, we need measures, and we, we, bung we know that we need that and then we bungle it again and again and again. Uh, and I'm not saying we don't need measures, uh, we don't need accountability, but measurement is a dangerous servant. Metrics can be gamed. When you measure, you'd better make sure that you're measuring the thing that you actually want to see. Uh, because whatever you're measuring, that is what you're going to see. So if you measure how many students get five on the AP test, you're going to get teachers who are dedicated to making sure their students get five on the AP test no matter what. Uh, a little bit about cream skimming. It's a hypothesis that has been tested. So there's a question about manipulating tests, but not just manipulating tests, it's manipulating admissions, manipulating retention decisions. I've served on a school board, uh, charter school board myself, and uh, when you've got like 500 students in the seventh grade and 16 students in the 12th grade, and yeah, you have 16 students who survived to get into the 12th grade, they're all getting five on the AP tests, and you say, that's quite an attrition rate. So yeah, yeah, I'm three, now is it really, should it really be three cheers for how well we're doing? I don't know. 
So you might suspect that, yeah, we have to admit everybody. It's a public school, so we admit everybody who applies, unless we get too many applicants. If we get too many applicants, then we ha we're legally required to choose by lottery. So it really is random. We really should be getting a random selection of the population. And then you say, well, no, that's not necessarily random. That's pretty random. But what if you say, okay, in the 11th grade, and we've seen this in traditional public schools, we've seen it in char charters, you're going from the 11th grade and the, into the 12th grade and they say, uh, you failed. You're only gonna get a four on the AP test, so we're gonna hold you back, you're gonna have to repeat the 11th grade. How many times do we have to repeat this thing? Well, until you transfer to another school because you're only gonna be a four. Um, so you'd say, okay, that's, that's cheating. And you say, like, do you really want to have a, a school that makes its decisions like that? And I've seen worse, worse things than that, not in charter schools, but in traditional schools, worse, worse things than that. So, yeah, be careful what you measure. Now, so the credo couldn't figure that out, but what they said, what we can say is that the demographic trend since the earlier report this might be the most interesting thing, uh, part, the most interesting thing I found. The demographic trends point to more challenging students, not less, which runs counter to the notion of selectivity uh, based on prior uh, education performance. And I was saying like 700 students in, in grade seven and like 16 in the 12th grade, actually the school that I was particularly talking about it's now more like 300 students in the 12th grade. So the 16 was just that, well, they, they hadn't been in business long enough to, to get an 11th grade going into the 12th grade, and now they're, uh, they're, the size of their high school class is much larger, so I'm, I'm less skeptical about that particular school now. Okay, so Credo found suggestive evidence that students had falling scores in the traditional schools in the two years prior to their switch to charter schools, which runs counter to the uh, cream skimming uh, hypothesis that they're only looking for the kind of students, they're only admitting the kind of students who get fives. It's illegal to do that and, and apparently the data does, isn't consistent with them doing that. So urban charter schools in the aggregate provide significantly higher levels of annual growth in those scores, in those uh, uh, improving performances, math and reading, compared to traditional schools. The urban schools are doing better relative to their traditional baselines. It's, we're seeing the improvement in the urban schools. Charter schools significantly larger for uh, learning gains, significantly larger for black, Hispanic, low income and special education students in math and reading. This is really important. We're gonna think about it for a second. Okay, so maybe the most encouraging thing here is that black students who attend a charter school on average have 14 additional days of learning in both reading and math compared to black students enrolled in the traditional schools. Black students in poverty who attend charter schools gain an additional 29 days of learning uh, in reading, 36 days in math over the traditional counterparts. The biggest impacts of all are among Hispanic students who are English language learners. They gain 50 days of learning in reading, 43 additional days in math from charter attendance per year. Not what I was expecting, but I can, I can tell you a story about it. It's to say, those are the kids where you get together with the other teachers in the faculty lounge and you say, hey guys, we're the ones who can save this kid. 
Like it doesn't get, like if you're a teacher, if that's what you have a passion to spend your life doing, this is as good as it gets. That kid doesn't get to fail on our watch. Other schools, well, like it's just, it's, as long as they don't shoot at you, it's okay. But uh, there are schools, like charter schools that deliberately choose to start up in the poorest urban neighborhoods. That's not an accident. They're there and they're populated by faculty. It's not that those faculty got last choice about where they were gonna work. They kind of got first choice and this was their first choice. So you think about it and there's a, there's a logic working there that, uh, that kind of starts to make sense. So I vaguely pictured charter schools, I don't know if you did, but I was thinking this is like, well, what to imagine, uh, upper class British prep school and events are proving this increasingly distorted and wrong as years go by. Some private schools were and are like that. Charter schools, no, they're evolving into something really distinct. Okay, now that's 2013, not the end. Another uh, Credo study came out in 2015. Urban charter schools in the aggregate provide significantly higher levels of annual growth in both math and reading compared to traditional peers. Learning gains for charter school students significantly larger for black, Hispanic, low-income special ed students. So uh, what the Credo team says, that's, that's important. Urban regions can serve as models from which all public schools can learn about serving disadvantaged populations. Second, maybe more important, uh, what you're seeing, the, you know, the theme uh, coming out of those charter schools is that the idea that these students can achieve high levels of academic success, they just need to be given a chance. Uh, like if you look at, you know, the, like the, it, you test students for IQ, uh, it's distributed evenly across incomes, evenly across, uh, you know, the most challenged, the most violent neighborhoods, the IQ profiles of kids in those neighborhoods. You think, no, no, they're, they're all like, like they're victims of lead poisoning, right? No, so they, no, it's not true. Their IQs are the same. So it's like 20% of the geniuses in this country are in schools where they're just trying to get through the day, just trying to like figure out what gang to sign up with so as not to be a victim, right? And they're, you know, five years from now, they're gonna disappear from the population of potential, potential Thomas Edison's and Mozart's. They're gonna disappear, but they're there now. And you've got charter schools being populated by teachers who say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see students like that. And they're not, gonna, they're not gonna join gangs on my watch. They're not going to uh, sort of recruit some, you know, stronger alpha male to make them pregnant. That's, it's not gonna work that way on my watch. So, uh, yeah, this is the most exciting thing uh, about it. So if we looked at traditional uh, public schools and if they tend to be white suburban schools, if that's what we're thinking of, we shouldn't be surprised that charters with similar demographics that for which they're the baseline for comparison. Yeah, they get co similar results. They're not particularly any better. Uh, suburban charters may attract better than average teachers, but so do their baseline traditional schools that uh, constitute um, you know, their, 
what they're measured against. I could be wrong. Uh, there are untold numbers of uncontrolled variables operating here, but the bottom line is in places where the traditional public school system is not broken as a matter of fact, no matter how much we can, it isn't broken. It's like parents in the suburbs, like white parents in the suburbs, they'll say, yeah, public education is a disaster, but my school's actually pretty good, right? So it's not broken in the, in the white suburbs, it's okay. But if black, Hispanic, urban, poor, language-challenged uh, populations are tangibly better served by charter schools than by traditional schools, then charters are a real alternative in the precise neighborhoods where we desperately need an alternative. So I wish I could end with three cheers for charters and confidence in our public school system's ability and willingness to reinvent itself as an institution that swims with rather than against the tide of market forces. What I'm actually seeing, however, is, uh, and I, I don't pretend to be an expert on this, I'm just eyeballing the data that I can see that appears to be reliable and nonpartisan, but it's, uh, what I'm seeing is more interesting and more inconclusive than that. Uh, so we know segregation is a problem in traditional public schools. Are charters doing better or worse? It's easy to imagine if you give families more choice about uh, where their children will go to school, well, it's easy to imagine that leading families to avoid schools where they would be in a minority. And that's all it takes to uh, drive spontaneous demographic shifts that in practice amount to segregation. Voluntary, yeah, great, but still generally unintended and unwanted. On the other hand, it also seems that such documented successes as we're currently seeing are turning out to be concentrated among minorities. It's the minorities who, and the poor kids, uh, language challenged, uh, first generation kids, uh, those are the ones who are really benefiting. So that gives us some reason to, at a minimum, be willing to let the experiment continue, which is all a proponent of markets ever asked for anyway. Uh, last thought, kind of ambiguous. Uh, I don't, you know, it's not a happy ending. As chains of charters emerge and succeed and proliferate, I expect some of them to become victims of their own success when they try to scale up a successful model. Scale is part of the essence of organizational structure. A scaled up organization isn't just a replica of a smaller organization, it, it's a different structure. As an organization grows, the top level gets farther from the ground where the feedback is the upper echelon of administrators increasingly come to be reacting with accountants rather than with students, and I've actually seen that. So that's a problem as it is with any private or, uh, or public institutional framework. So I will, I will just stop there because it's time, to, uh, time for questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.